government put us in a helicopter and flew us from Baku right up to the line of contact. And it's all flat, all the way up to where the Armenian trenches are. And it is like World War I there, by the way. You have trenches in a no man's land. Uh, but once you get to the Armenian trenches, it, it is, the Nagorno means mountainous, and it's mountainous. It would be exceedingly difficult if not impossible, without mass casualties and you know uh, thousands of civilian casualties, uh, to take back Nagorno-Karabakh. Welcome to the Burn Bag Podcast. My name is Andre Gonoela. I'm Ryan Rosenthal. And today we're excited to have former Ambassador Ian Kelly on the podcast. Before we dive into today's conversation, uh, we just wanted to give you a brief background on the Ambassador. Uh, Ian Kelly was a career foreign service officer who served as ambassador twice, first as U.S. representative to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, and second as ambassador to Georgia. He was spokesperson for the State Department, director of the Office of Russian Affairs, and has served in Russia, Turkey, and at the U.S. mission to NATO, among other postings. Since retiring from the foreign service, Ambassador Kelly has been ambassador-in-residence at Northwestern University in Chicago. Ambassador, you've certainly had a distinguished career, to say the least, uh, and it's an absolute pleasure to talk to you again. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks, Ambassador. We, we appreciate you coming on the podcast. Um, so today we're here to talk about a very specific issue, that being the current conflict in the Caucasus. Uh, in Nagorno-Karabakh. And so I have a feeling that many of our listeners don't know much about both the region and the conflict. I certainly uh, did not before I did some some heavy reading. But so um, here's a background. So the Caucasus, of course, is a region between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. It's surrounded by Turkey to the west, Russia to the north, and Iran to the south. And Nagorno-Karabakh is effectively a breakaway state um, it is on the border between Armenia and Azerbaijan. The territory of Nagorno-Karabakh uh, is actually internationally recognized as being a part of Azerbaijan, uh, but Armenia has de facto had control over that territory and some surrounding territories uh, for decades. So, um, Ambassador, let's let's kind of start off with some some more context on this issue. Right, it's the longest running unresolved dispute in the former Soviet space, and certainly one of the, the least known. So why have Armenia and Azerbaijan been fighting over this territory? Well, thanks very much, uh, Ryan and Andre. Uh, I've been dealing with uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, and actually I hadn't heard of Nagorno-Karabakh till uh, February of 1988, when I was at the uh, U.S. Embassy to Moscow. And the Local council, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh is a uh, was an autonomous region in the um, in the Soviet period in recognition of its uh, majority uh, Armenian population. So it was a autonomous region in Azerbaijan, which is um, which has a uh, majority population of uh, Azeris who are uh, who are, Tur- who are Turkic people. And in, in February 1988, uh, the local council, local Soviet in Stepanakert, 
the um, the, the capital of the of the region, voted to uh, ask the uh, the Supreme Soviet in Moscow, the Soviet Union, to join Armenia. And basically, they could see the handwriting on the wall about the disintegration of the Soviet Union. And if uh, if the Soviet Union disintegrated, which it did, of course, a few years later, Nagorno-Karabakh would um, come under uh, Baku, would come under the, um, the Azeris, and they wanted to avoid that. Um, it led to, um, it was basically the, the first domino in many ways in the disintegration of, uh, of the Soviet Union. A couple, of, uh, a couple of years later, other autonomous regions in Georgia, South Ossetia, and Abkhazia, uh, they declared their independence, and that led to, to a conflict which is still ongoing. Same thing with, uh, with Moldova. Uh, I won't go into all the details of those, of course, but the reaction of the Azeris um, to this request to uh, basically rip out about 15% of the territory of Azerbaijan was extreme and violent. And this is what I remember when I was in Moscow, the horrifying news of pogroms, of ethnic cleansing of an Armenian population in a suburb of Baku, the capital of Azerbaijan. Um, so there, there was ethnic cleansing and, and, and murders of, um, of Armenians who were living in Sumgait, this town, uh, and hadn't been living there for centuries. Uh, there were, uh, I think, around 32 people killed and around 14,000 Armenians uh, fled right away from uh, Sumgait that was followed a few months later by uh, an even more horrifying pogrom in Baku itself, uh, and thousands fled um, then as well. Um, fueling all of this is the historic enmity between Turks, and Azeris basically are Turks, uh, at least linguistically and ethnically. Uh, the, the enmity between Turks and Armenians. Neither side um, trusts the other, and there's uh, quite a bit of historical baggage going back to World War I and the terrible massacres of Armenians in the, in the Turkish Ottoman Empire. And then, of course, you know, in, 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 uh, when the Soviet Union did, did fall apart, war broke out, uh, and uh, the um, Armenians in Armenia itself. Uh, came to the assistance of the Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, it was a very bloody war. Uh, tens of thousands were killed. About a million were displaced. And the Armenians won a complete victory. They occupied about 95% of uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, plus the, the uh, territory around Nagorno-Karabakh. Actually, Nagorno-Karabakh doesn't have any contiguous territory with Armenia. There's one, there's one section which is only about 20 miles or so from the Armenian border. But those districts, an entire kind of security buffer zone uh, was occupied by Armenia, and they continue to occupy it.
So I think it's safe to say that both sides, as you alluded to and said in your answer, they view Nagorno-Karabakh as a historically and culturally significant region, very much so. Uh, Notably, as you said, the region is majority ethnic Armenian. But how, in reality, should this conflict actually be viewed? For example, is it more of an ethnic conflict or is it religious? Uh, Is it uh, because of territorial aspirations or is it more of a strategic sort of initiative that they're trying to take? Or is it just all of the above? Well, I think, you know, when it comes to to Baku and Yerevan, the capital of of Armenia, it's it's basically, it it is a, uh, it is a, basically a territorial conflict with uh, deep religious and historic uh, sort of undertones to it. Um, there are a number of kind of, uh, you know, historic uh, civilizational conflicts behind this. There, there's Christian versus Muslim. So the Armenians uh, actually have the oldest church in the world. They, the Armenian church was the first, uh, well, the Armenian state was the first to declare Christianity as a state religion back in the fourth century, and the um, and the Azeris are Muslim. They're 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 Shiite uh, Muslims. I wouldn't. They are not fundamentalist. Um, they by and large are, are secular, but there is that conflict. And of course, there's the um, the the Azeri uh, versus. Uh, I'm sorry, the Turks versus the Armenians conflict, uh, which for the Armenians is extremely uh, visceral. This this feeling that Armenians can never feel safe with uh, with Turks as their as their uh, overlords or as the central authority. Uh, I've had many Armenians tell me that they would never agree to live. Under the um, uh, you know under the authority of uh, of Baku, and uh, that's just one of the many very hard nuts uh, that are that um, have to be broken before there can be any kind of negotiated solution. Absolutely, and so as we've been talking about this this territory and its inhabitants are you know mostly Armenians, and they call their territory not Nagorno-Karabakh but the Artsakh Republic. Uh, and so I, I kind of want to get into some more regional implications, right? There are certainly challenges when you have breakaway territories or ongoing conflict. But if we take a broader lens um, on the Caucasus as a whole, uh, what are the challenges to having a self-governed breakaway territory, both in, in this part uh, of, you know, between Armenia and Azerbaijan, but also when we look more broadly at the other um, either frozen conflicts or ongoing conflicts that you mentioned? Whether it's Transnistria or you know Abkhazia and South Ossetia, or even if I mean this is not the Caucasus, but of course there's Eastern Ukraine and Crimea. Yeah, I mean they they do share uh, Nagorno Karabakh does share characteristics with some of those um, separatist conflicts that you mentioned in the post-Soviet space. Of course, I know the one in, in or the ones in in Georgia with two separate regions that have broken away. But yeah, there's also uh, Moldova and. Um, there's uh, Crimea and, and Eastern Ukraine. Of course, the biggest difference is in those uh, other three countries in Moldova, Ukraine, and Georgia. They are uh, they have Russian troops on their soil, 
Uh, and in the case of, of uh, Ukraine, of course, it's, it's still an ongoing um, hot conflict. So this, uh, this conflict uh, is unique in that there, is no, there's no, there are no Russian boots on the ground and there are no ethnic Russians to speak of uh, who need protection, uh, which, of course, is one of the justifications that uh, Moscow uses to occupy Georgia and, and Ukraine. Uh, so that's that's one of the that's the major difference. And that's. That's actually that's a good thing, uh, because um, the the Russians can exert influence on both capitals and, and have up until this conflict. And that's the difference with this. The Russians have not been able to stop the, the shooting. Um, but it is this is basically just uh, head on. Uh, Baku versus Yerevan over, uh, you know, it's a conflict over over territory. And, you know, both countries see Nagorno-Karabakh as having a real kind of cultural significance. Although the, the, the latest census before the fighting in 1992 showed that um, Armenians were 75% of the population. There still was a significant Azeri community there, uh, especially in uh, a town that is next to uh, Stepanakert, which is the capital of Nagorno-Karabakh. I apologize to your listeners for throwing all these new names at you. But this town of Shusha, which I visited when I was the negotiator, it's totally abandoned now. It's 100% Azeri. It was, uh, it was seen as kind of the cultural capital in many ways of um, of Azerbaijan, a lot of Persian influence there. And um, this is, it's deeply upsetting to many Azeris, especially the, the, the tens of thousands who had to flee their homes, that um, this town of Shusha is uh, under occupation. So that, you know, there are uh, sort of cultural um, cultural disputes that, that fuel this as well. And as you mentioned, tens of thousands of people fleeing from their homes. I mean, for a lot of us who are sort of just discovering this issue, we're often talking about the political aspects, the military aspects. But what has the humanitarian impact of this conflict been? I mean, during 1991 to 1994 war between the two countries, over 20,000 people were killed and over 1 million, 1 million were displaced. So, and hundreds more have died since the since you know these twenty five years. Uh, what's the situation been like on the ground with regards to this whole humanitarian crisis? Yeah, it's you know I, I think that kind of in the in the long run, uh, I think there there are many tragedies, of course, to to ethnic cleansing and people having to uh, flee their ancestral homes. You know where they're. Uh, their ancestors have lived for for generations, but I think you know one of the one of the biggest tragedies of this is both of those countries, Armenia and Azerbaijan, were um, were basically multi-ethnic. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, there were tens of thousands of uh, of ethnic Armenians living in and around Baku, and they had for you know hundreds of years. 
the people of Nagorno-Karabakh lived quite peacefully side by side, you know, until uh, 19, 1988. So that's, um, uh, that is, uh, you know, one of, one of the really sad aspects of this. And also one of the sad aspects of the other conflicts in the post-Soviet region, like in Georgia and Ukraine and, uh, and in Moldova. Uh, when I was the negotiator for the, the conflict, this was 2012, 2013, traveled often to both capitals and to Nagorno-Karabakh. And each time the authorities would uh, make sure that uh, I would meet with refugees, uh, and uh, especially in, in Baku, I think the majority of refugees are ethnic uh, Azeris. Uh, but they would be, um, they are a tremendous political influence in, uh, in, in Azeri politics, in Azerbaijani politics. They, they put a lot of pressure on the government to, to resolve this, to take back the territory. Um, and um, they, you know, they, they want to, they want to return. Uh, I think one of the saddest things that I saw was in um, Nagorno-Karabakh, the, the Russian ambassador, there were three of us, there's a Russian, a Frenchman, and myself. Russian ambassador asked to see this ethnic Azeri uh, graveyard, centuries old, in the uh, occupied territories right outside of Nagorno-Karabakh, because he'd heard that there had been vandalism there. And uh, the, our escorts, our Armenian escorts, you know, hemmed and hawed and then finally agreed to do it. And we noticed they, as soon as we got out, they walked far away. Uh, and then we looked at the graveyard and it was destroyed. Uh, there were, I mean, all of the gravestones were all knocked over. And, um, you know, it's just, just complete, it was vandalism. And supposedly, this was in retaliation for. A uh, for an ethnic Armenian cemetery that had been vandalized in in Azerbaijan, um, and then when we uh, uh, drove around these occupied territories, there's a large city that held about fifty thousand people called Agdam in the occupied territories, and it was it's totally deserted, just like Shusha in Nagorno-Karabakh, but. The uh, all of the homes there have been stripped down of everything of value. You know, all of the all of the the, uh, the the pipes. It's just they're the they're, the houses are just shells. No one's lived in them. But the symbol of both the uh, vandalized graveyard and the vandalized homes is basically uh, we don't want you ever to return. And um, that, of course, you know, that is, that is something that obviously and understandably really upsets, upset is too mild a term, uh, upsets the Azeris and the Armenians, if they, you know, if the, the uh, destruction of the graveyards of the Armenians as well. Ambassador, now that we've sort of talked about this, uh, this whole background regarding this current war and this conflict as it has pertained in the last couple of decades, uh, we just want to talk to you now about this direct pathway to war. Essentially, 
why have tensions flared in the past week? It seems as if Azerbaijan has become empowered out of nowhere. What are the driving factors behind these offensive actions? Yeah, it's a uh, yeah, it's a very very alarming situation. I would say there's kind of one long-term uh, reason for the the flare-up now, and then there's a uh, there's kind of a a more immediate development that, as you say, has empowered these areas. The first is just the overall frustration with the negotiating process. Uh, the uh, the Minsk group, you know, the the mechanism set up by the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe to negotiate between the two sides. We had what we thought was a reasonable uh, plan and a reasonable solution, and that was to uh, for Armenia to, um, to basically give up the undisputed Azeri territory that they, that they occupy, you know, this buffer zone around Nagorno-Karabakh itself. Um, and in return, the Azeris give them a corridor from uh, Armenia proper into Nagorno-Karabakh. And the uh, Azeris agree to respect the outcome of a referendum on the self-determination of Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, the Armenians never budged on this because they basically have what they want. They not only have Nagorno-Karabakh, they have a security zone around uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. And um, I, I think, you know, the, the, the Azeris would like to get the occupied territories back, but if, but if the, if the, uh, the, uh, the price for that is a referendum in Nagorno-Karabakh, they know how that's going to go. It's going to go with, even if the Azeri refugees return or are able to vote, there's, there's still going to be an Armenian majority, uh, and they will lose Nagorno-Karabakh. And, um, you know, I, we, the, um, uh, these maximalist positions on both sides uh, are, are the main obstacle to negotiation. So anyway, so the, 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 the sort of the ongoing reason for this is the frustration with the negotiating process and the, the, uh, the occupied territories are, uh, are, are in on low ground Nagorno-Karabakh is high ground, very hard, hard to take, but the occupied territories uh, are not. So the Azeris have clearly made a decision that they're going to at least start to take back those territories by military force. But the the uh, the really immediate, well, actually, there were two developments uh, that really were game changers, and one was the uh, the the full-throated support. Of um, of Ankara uh, for the uh, military aims of uh, uh, of the uh, Azerbaijani military forces. Turkey, up until a couple of years ago, was much more circumspect. Of course, they support their their ethnic brethren, but they uh, they've never come out this strongly. Um, to um, you know, to support the the Azeris militarily, uh, and of course the um, the Baku knows that the West is uh, is distracted, 
the U.S. is hardly at all engaged in the, trying to broker any kind of ceasefire. Um, so these combination of, uh, of circumstances, I think, led to Baku uh, finally deciding to start to take military action to regain their territory. And so kind of staying on this military action, um, both of these countries dedicate a relatively high percentage of their GDPs on military spending. And so I guess the, the question is, has this military militarization kind of increased the chances for conflict, or is it maybe the reverse, that this conflict has required uh, more militarization? Well, I think, uh, yeah, I, I think having a strong, uh, strong armed forces really kind of goes uh, goes both ways. I mean, it can be either a deterrence or it can be a temptation. Um, and I think in the case of Baku, uh, Baku, you know, I had very senior uh, Azerbaijani government officials tell me when I was a negotiator that um, they they were preparing for war. They basically said, uh, you know, we just have to write, wait for the right moment, and uh, Nagorno-Karabakh will fall into our hands like a ripe fruit because our military budget is larger than the entire state budget of, of Armenia. And those are very chilling words. I mean, this is seven years ago, um, but clearly, you know, they they have made this decision to use military means to try and take back. Uh, their their territory, but I, I think that the the aspect of this that has made war inevitable is the rhetoric of both sides, this extremely bellicose and uh, rhetoric and demonization of uh, of either side. Uh, we three negotiators we would constantly tell. The leaders in Baku and Yerevan, you've got to stop this. You've got to prepare your people for peace, not for war. You are constantly beating the war drums and talking about how uh, one side is going to commit genocide on the other and uh, making any kind of compromise impossible. That's what's made the war inevitable, the, the rhetoric on both sides. So, Ambassador, you, of course, have a significant experience in dealing with Russia. Uh, they have, of course, had a crucial role in this conflict, largely as a mediator, but also as a primary arms supplier. Uh, what are Russia's true strategic interests, and are they sort of fanning the flames behind the scenes, or are they truly suing for peace? Well, it's interesting. I don't think they're doing either. <laughs> I think... Uh, I think the, the preference of Moscow is to keep um, all the former Soviet republics uh, basically dependent on, on Russia for, for arms, uh, for um, influence. And um, so their, their interest is to keep the conflict at a simmer. They don't. I don't think Moscow wants to resolve this because once it's resolved, their influence goes away, uh, or at least is is uh, is diminished greatly. As you point out, they sell arms to both sides. 
which I always found rather repulsive. Um, but uh, the um, outright war, though, I don't think is in their interests either. And particularly now that Turkey is taking such a prominent role in backing uh, one side. Uh, but I, you know, I, 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 I don't think they want a, uh, you know, total war. Uh, if only because if Azerbaijan invades Armenia proper, there is a, uh, a collective security treaty that uh, obliges Russia to come to the aid of, uh, of Armenia. And then you really will have a regional war uh, because I don't think Turkey will uh, stand by as Armenia uh, invades Azerbaijan. <clears throat> so that, that I think, you know, uh, Russia, until this, this new tr uh, Turkey factor played a positive role. And as I said before, they've Putin or his foreign minister, Lavrov, has always been able to stop the fighting. It, you know, it, it's flared up over the years. Um, this is that the, the longest continuous um, conflict, you know, shooting shooting conflict between the two sides, and Russia hasn't been able to stop it. Yeah, I think that's the particular interesting part about this current um, outbreak of violence, but also the most distressing at that. And let, let's go back to Turkey because it's playing such a critical role. In these most recent flare-ups, uh, so it's it's been supporting Azerbaijan uh, for years, uh, but it wasn't always the most uh, outright aggressive supporter. Uh, so so what's changed, right? Has has Erdogan found a strategic tension point to exploit? What is driving Turkey to really beat the war drums and kind of ensure that this becomes the territory of Azerbaijan? Yeah, it's really. I mean, for Big uh, geostrategic uh, thinkers. This is a, a fascinating uh, situation. Um, it, it, basically, I think what you see is um, is Turkey reasserting its I don't know the right term hegemony maybe over the Turkic space uh, in the in the former Soviet Union. Uh, as I say, I mean uh, the Azeri language is basically Turkish. I mean, I, I lived three years in Ankara, and I can, I can read Azeri. Uh, I can't say I speak it, uh, but they're very, very close. And just as um, Erdogan has asserted his, um, what he sees as kind of the, his uh, Ottoman entitlement over the former Ottoman lands in uh, in Syria and Iraq, uh, and then of course Libya as well. I think he's doing the same in uh, in um, uh, in the Caucasus, in you know, with uh, 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 with Azerbaijan and uh, and Armenia. Uh, this is, uh, I mean, it's it's a way for him to whip up his base. Uh, Erdogan can whip up his his um, uh, his kind of red meat nationalist uh, base. And uh, so it's politically advantageous to him, uh, but I think it also, you know, helps uh, helps him um, with his kind of neo neo Ottoman uh, ambitions. 
So as we just discussed, yes, there have been reports of Turkey's direct involvement in the conflict uh, from targeting Armenian assets to allegedly sending 1,000 Syrian rebels to assist Azerbaijan. Now we should also mention that as of October 1st, three Syrian rebels were reportedly killed in this conflict. Uh, Without getting to the merits of these claims, do you see Turkey engaging in an all-out war? against Armenia? The short answer is no. Uh, I, I don't think they're interested in uh, going toe-to-toe with, uh, with Russia. And that's what this would... I mean, if they want to launch an all-out war against Armenia, that's, that's what will happen. Um, it, it will be a, uh, a, a battle of, of great powers. And I don't think you know, Turkey has any interest in that. As I say, I think the, the interest here is mostly political. Um, in uh, you know appealing to the um, the, the, the uh, nationalists in, in Turkey, and they're quite a influential uh, demographic. That's not the right word. Uh, community in uh, in Turkey, and of course they're all they're all I think pumped up uh, over this. Um, I but I you know I they have said very clearly that they will support all the attempts of Azerbaijan to take back their territory um, and uh, to take back the, uh, the kind of the buffer zone would be f- not easy, but it would be much easier than taking Nagorno-Karabakh. You know, I, I really had brought home to me the, um, the strategic advantage that the Nagorno-Karabakhis had when um, Baku uh, put us in a helicopter. You know, the government put us in a helicopter and flew us from Baku right up to the line of contact. And it's all flat, all the way up to where the Armenian trenches are. And it is like World War I there, by the way. You have trenches in a no-man's land. Uh, but once you get to the Armenian trenches, the um, it, it is the Nagorno means mountainous, and it's mountainous. It would be exceedingly difficult, if not impossible, without uh, mass casualties and you know uh, thousands of civilian casualties uh, to take back Nagorno Karabakh, as it's hard to take back any real high ground like that without carpet bombing it, basically. So that, I think, that was um, really uh, kind of reckless to say that, to say that we will back whatever territory they, they try to take back. Um, it's, a, it's a very, very dangerous uh, situation. Uh, but again, I, I don't, they, Ankara has no interest in actually uh, engaging in an all-out war against Armenia. A lot of Armenians would die, of course, though, uh, if they do try to take back Nagorno-Karabakh. I think your your comparison about the, the landscape to that of World War One uh, is certainly a concerning one, particularly as you know, I was listening um, yesterday to Dmitry Trenin make a comparison. He's, of course, of the Carnegie Moscow Center to that. There's echoes of 1914, and that is incredibly distressing. But um, 
Now, you, 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 you said that this may not be in the Turks' interest for an all-out war. That's certainly likely the case. Um, and Nagorno-Karabakh um, is not technically covered under Russia's collective security treaty organization agreement with Armenia, which would, in theory, oblige uh, Russia to protect Armenia if it were, in fact, attacked. Now, you know, would Russia respond if Armenia is attacked? Right. We've there's been reporting of our of the Armenians being attacked outside of Nagorno-Karabakh, outside of these contested territories. Um, and to, I guess, maybe throw an, another hypothetical into the mix, Turkey is a NATO member as well. If we have Turkey fighting with Azerbaijan and then Russia joins the mix uh, on Armenia's side, how does NATO play into this? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I didn't hear Dimitri's, um, you know, or, or read what he said yesterday. But yes, it is. It is, I think, very reminiscent of uh, of 1914, both uh visually and uh, kind of historically, but um, just, you know, a couple little anecdotes about that uh, uh, World War One scene there on the line of contact. Uh, they have, uh, so they're separated by about 300 meters, 300 yards or so. Uh, the trenches are just like uh, in World War One movies with this barbed wire, wire, and they even have tin cans on the barbed wire, kind of a primitive alarm system for somebody coming over the line. Um, and they had to demine the, uh, you know, one path through, uh, uh, through, the, uh, through the, the no man's land for us uh, to, uh, uh, to get through. Uh, but, you know, not only does, does Russia have a treaty obligation, under this, under the collective security agreement they have, there are also three thousand Russian troops uh, right outside of Yerevan at a base called Gumri. Uh, and as it so happens, the OSCE head, uh, head of the office there of the monitoring mission, um, had a house right next to the base. So when we were talking, uh, we could hear these Suhoi jets taking off and landing all the time. Uh, so there are there are Russians on the ground. It's just that they're in this uh, one base. But it is uh, it's a situation really fraught with a lot of danger. Uh, you know, clearly the the NATO role would be, I think, you know, fairly circumspect. Um, you know, if it's unlikely that uh, Armenia will be hit, it's also unlikely that Turkey would be hit. And then Article Five would would uh, compel the members of NATO to come to Turkey's aid. So I think uh, there's probably a diplomatic role for NATO, and I would hope it would be a role to try and restrain Turkey using the, you know, the, the uh, multilateral um, forces, diplomatic forces that could be brought to bear on Turkey. Uh, the U.S. would have a role. The U.S. sells a lot of arms to Turkey. Um, and of course, other NATO members do too. Uh, so it could become a uh, kind of a multilateral diplomatic forum to try and bring the sides to <clears throat> to um, some kind of negotiating uh, table. Um, I don't see them exerting much of a, much influence at all on the two warring sides, though, on Baku and Yerevan. And in terms of you know this multilateral type of situation, we might have. We've talked about Russia, we've talked about Turkey, we've talked about NATO, but now let's add another power into the mix, Iran. How does Iran fit into this conflict? 
uh, Iran has attempted to mediate in 1992, uh, but it was to no avail, of course, and it is being reported now that Iran is sending military supplies to Armenia, which, of course, it has denied officially. Uh, do you see Iran playing a notable role currently and in the future? Oh, yeah, I do. <laughs> and I think this is probably the most uh, neglected part of, you know, all the, uh, all the moving diplomatic parts here is the role of Iran. <clears throat> Interestingly, even though uh, Azeris are uh, Shiite Muslims, the, um, there's a lot of uh, distrust between Baku and Tehran because of the large Azeri population in, um, in Iran itself. In fact, there are more ethnic Azeris in Iran than there are in, in Azerbaijan. And uh, this is a, it's the largest minority in, in Tehran, uh, in Iran. And um, there's a lot of suspicions of the ultimate goals of, uh, of Baku uh, for this Azeri minority in, uh, in Iran. So uh, Armenia, on the other hand, has historically had very good relations with, uh, with Iran. Um, Armenia, that part of Armenia anyway, Greater Armenia as they call it, uh, because uh, the biggest part of the uh, Armenian population used to be in eastern Turkey, at least before 1915. Uh, Armenia has had good relations with Persia, and uh, they have uh, very uh, good commercial relations. Uh, you know, one of the aspects of this conflict is that the uh, the border between Armenia and Turkey. And the board, and, and of course, with Azerbaijan, is closed. There, nobody can go back and forth. No goods can go back and forth. So, most of the trade, um, including oil and natural gas, comes from Iran. They've got a large border uh, with uh, with Iran. And when the Russians want to send in arms, they have to go all the way down. Uh, the Caspian Sea, and then around Iran, and then up. So it's also uh, the the route for um, for Armenia to get uh, the arms and ammunition that it needs. So, yeah, I mean, occasionally we would hear that Iran wanted to get involved in the in the Minsk group, and uh, we basically ignored it. Um, but they want to play a role, most definitely, uh, and it won't necessarily be a positive role. It's a one-sided role, much as, you know, Turkey's role is one-sided. So now, Ambassador, during your career in the Foreign Service, uh, you served as ambassador to the OSCE. For our listeners, that's the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. Uh, could you tell us a bit about what this important IGO, this intergovernmental organization, does? And it's work surrounding this conflict in particular. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, the OSCE, basically, um, it, it's, its importance was it, it came out of the Helsinki process. It came out of the Conference for Security and Cooperation in Europe. And, um, you know, its, it's greatest contribution to um, international, uh, international security was the idea that 
um, mutual security depends not just on, on uh, arms and uh, military force. Uh, security among states depends on respect for human rights among states uh, or within states. So uh, this is this is this is the OSCE's great uh, contribution to um, to the uh, idea of international security. Um, after the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, and the uh, Warsaw Pact, uh, the OSCE took on a role of conflict management and conflict resolution. Uh, monitors were sent to Yugoslavia, to Chechnya, to uh, to Moldova, to Georgia, uh, and to uh, to Nagorno-Karabakh. So. Uh, and of course, now there's a huge monitoring mission, OSCE monitoring mission in uh, in Ukraine. The problem is, um, uh, you know, it's like Stalin's comment about the Vatican. Uh, you know, the Vatican has a moral force, but how many divisions does it have? And uh, same thing with the OSCE. The OSCE can do monitoring. And it has an office uh, uh, at the OSCE that is ready to set up a peacekeeping mission to Nagorno-Karabakh, um, but it doesn't really have any kind of coercive powers to uh, to bring the sides to uh, to the table, even though they the or the organization um, is the umbrella organization for the negotiating process, this so-called Minsk group. So. Ambassador, we've talked a lot about a lot of different countries, um, but one country in particular has not been discussed yet in this current situation, that being the United States. Uh, and so many world leaders have called for a ceasefire. Of course, the U.S. released a joint statement with the co-chairs of the Minsk Group condemning the violence, calling for a ceasefire. The U.N. has called for a ceasefire. The EU has called for a ceasefire. Um, but what is the U.S. role in this? It seems we're going to be increasingly more engaged, uh, but where do you see the U.S. fitting into all this? Well, I am uh, uh, I'm very glad to be retired. <laughs> and one of the reasons I'm glad to be retired, even though I love my time in the Foreign Service, um, is I can say what I want now about, uh, about my own capital. So I will say that I am deeply disappointed at the response of, uh, of the United States to this for two reasons. One is issuing statements. That doesn't do much at all. I mean, it's helpful. But what is really needed is because of the nature of the, uh, of the governments in both Yerevan and Baku, particularly in Baku, what you need is personal engagement. You need to, to uh, pick up the phone and you need to do some you know, jawboning. Uh, the other two co-chair countries, France and Russia, have done that. Macron called both leaders. Putin called both leaders. We got a deputy secretary of state to call the foreign ministers. So uh, we are uh, missing in action here, essentially. Uh, the other aspect of it that's important is um, the U.S. has these fantastic fora where we can uh, marshal forces. Um, you know, we, we saw uh, Bill, uh, George H.W. Bush do that. With, um, uh, with the collapse of the Soviet Union. We saw Bill Clinton do it uh, with Yugoslavia. And uh, I don't see much, uh, much evidence at all at 
engagement in the at the highest level with coordinating with uh, with our allies who collectively have tremendous influence, uh, you know, economic, uh, military, lots and lots of influence. But um, the America Firsters are not doing much at all in terms of um, dealing with our allies. In fact, when the president has gotten involved, it's usually in a negative sense, uh, talking down the allies and insulting the allies. Yeah. I mean, the last thing the world needs right now is another war. And of course, the U.S. is deep in the middle of its election season. So it seems that the, the West and the U.S. in particular uh, are not so focused on this conflict. Um, you've been very generous with your time, Ambassador. One final question. Uh, where do you see this conflict going? Uh, I know it's a very difficult question because there's many moving parts. And um, But I think given your experience uh, and your knowledge about the situation, we'd, we'd love to hear your insights. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't see, you know, as I said before, uh, Russia played a, you know, positive role in getting the sides to stop shooting at each other. Um, you know, I, I don't see that, uh, that happening, that particular lever, I don't think is available. Uh, I, I do think that uh, Baku has made the decision that if it wants to get its land back, it's not going to get it at the negotiating table. It's going to get it um, um, on the ground militarily. Uh, I don't see them trying to take on Nagorno-Karabakh uh, because you know they know that it's um, uh, it's it will be extremely uh, costly and bloody. One thing that uh, the Armenians have that is their ultimate deterrence against an invasion of Nagorno-Karabakh is they have Russian-supplied medium-range missiles. And senior Armenians told me that if, uh, if, things, if they really do go all out, uh, they will take out um, Azerbaijan's oil infrastructure. Uh, and that would cut off uh, the... Uh, Cut off the the the, uh, the cash to to Baku, and that's the last thing that they want. They've got um, they've got a very robust oil and gas industry there, and the last thing they want to see is you know, having that uh, gusher uh, destroyed. That's the right metaphor. <laughs> On that note, Ambassador, uh, thank you so much for joining us. And this the scary issue, frankly, I mean. Uh, We'll see what happens in the coming days in terms of developments uh, between the two countries. Uh, but yes, thank you. Thank you also for your service. And yeah, thank you for coming on this podcast. Hopefully our listeners will be able to learn a lot more about this conflict as a result. So thank you. Ryan, Andre, wish you all the best and wish you the, the best of luck for this, uh, this, this podcast, which I will, uh, I will continue to listen to. To hear other fascinating conversations, subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media at Burnbag Pod. Thank you for listening. This is the Burnbag Podcast.